3: Marie Curie was a Polish-French physicist and chemist who discovered the theory of radioactivity, as well as two new elements, polonium and radium. She was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize, the first person and only woman to win twice, and the only person to win a Nobel Prize in two different scientific fields. My guest today is Daniel Whiteson, He is a professor of experimental particle physics at the University of California, Irvine, and a fellow of the American Physical Society. He conducts research using the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. He is the co-host of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a fun-filled discussion of the big, mind-blowing, unanswered questions about the universe. Beginning at the beginning, in 1867, Marie Curie, who was actually born Mania or Maria, but they called her Mania Skradowska. I'm probably mangling that, but I believe that's how it's pronounced. Was born in Warsaw, which had been Poland, but had recently been taken over by Russia, essentially. And this was really important because in terms of the culture And the emotional state of her family, her mother and father being not only Polish, but really nationalistically Polish, and that being very important to them, this was a painful time, and it came with a lot of restrictions for them in terms of what they could do, and it really influenced the way they handled the raising of their children.
0: That's right. They had these very strong values about the importance of Polishness and Poland as a country and also about education. I mean, her parents were both teachers and they really wanted young Marie or Manya to understand physics and mathematics and to have a brain in her. From lots of perspectives, they really seemed sort of like modern forward thinking people to educate their children, to value education.
3: And that really was forward thinking because as a girl... Many families didn't expect girls to be educated or do much of anything. But the difference in this family was, first of all, that her mother had been, as you said, an educator, was head of a private school for women specifically. So a, not only an educator herself, but an educator of women. So that was important to her. And clearly, the father married her. So he was more than accepting of this. And interestingly, he was a physicist himself. Math and physics was, in his opinion, the most important subject, but more so than that, practical math and physics. In other words, not just theoretical, but what could you do with it? It needed to have application. (laughs) That would turn out to be really formative and important for Maria.
0: I do. I feel a little bit judged there, you know, because the kind of physics that I do is particle physics. It's sort of extreme on the edge of uselessness. So I'm not sure that I would agree with Marie Curie's father about the value of applied physics, but I think that all science is valuable. And most importantly, it's just important to teach your kids to think critically and think scientifically. Think about how many incredible geniuses in history have contributed to humanity because their parents insisted on their education. You know, especially when they broke with tradition, the first person in their family to get an education it makes me wonder how many people out there Didn't get an education and could have changed history.
3: Absolutely. Because, of course, even though she had these parent educators, in some ways, she was an unlikely suspect in the sense that because of what happened in terms of Russia moving in, they could barely make ends meet. So even though they were both educators, the mother had lost her job. She had to move to a lower school, a lesser school, and certainly a non-paying or a much less paying situation. And the father also fell on hard times, Mm -hmm. was paid less for the kind of educating that he was doing. And in addition to that, there was a good deal of trauma that happened in this family early on that we should talk about that also would make staying focused on education difficult and being a student difficult. Everything from witnessing Russian soldiers come in and really commit atrocities Mm -hmm. to Polish nationals who were trying to essentially stick up for themselves. These events that occurred were disturbing to Maria. She remembers them. She she cited them in letters and so on. And the economic struggles meant that there was only so much schooling one could afford, essentially. And this had the potential to limit what happened with the children were it not for the parents doing really everything they could.
0: And there was one small silver lining there. The Russians came in and they, for example, they said, no more lab instruction in Polish schools. They didn't want to, they didn't care too much about the education of the Polish students. And so Marie's father was forced to bring home all of his awesome lab equipment that he used to use in the school which meant of course that he got to teach his kids how to do physics experiments. So she indirectly actually benefited from the sort of Russian oppression of Polish education.
3: So no doubt this made an early impact on her, just the engagement in being able to do these kinds of lab experiments and being excited about the equipment and developing a passion herself, not just her father's passion, but her own passion for the science. Unfortunately, also as a young person, Her mother developed tuberculosis and therefore was really not only sickly, but kept her distance from Marie because even though it was sort of pre the well understanding that TB was passed communally, she had enough of a sense that she tried to sort of keep a distance, be less touchy. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Marie is noted for saying at some point, I never felt a mother's kiss that specifically the physical affection. Yeah, that it was really sad, but it was really her mother's attempt to spare mm-hmm. her daughter and her family. And also there were these absences of the mother where she would go to the classic sort of sanatorium, which was the only treatment they had at the time, go away, rest, do some sort of spa-like treatment. They weren't fun spas like today's spas, but you know, some sort of resting treatment in the mountains where the air was supposedly better. And she would go away for periods of time so that Maria had a sense of abandonment, essentially, and take one of her younger sisters. There were multiple sisters, but Zosia went for cures with her mother. She also was a sickly child. So there was sort of a dearth, I guess I say, of parental attention in certain ways. The more present parent was actually the father who was teaching and, you know, who ultimately had to move to a boarding school. That he housed in his home because essentially he lost his job and that was the only way to make money, to bring students to his home, create like an in-home boarding school. So Maria has these memories of, you know, sleeping on the floor or sleeping wherever, uh, not having enough food, trying to literally get by in this very crowded circumstance so that the family could make ends meet.
0: And I wonder if this is part of what gives her her passion for science that we see through her entire life. If she feels like by conducting experiments, by studying the universe, maybe you could gain some power over it. You could develop some new tool that could help cure some sickness or help some people or really change the fundamental characteristics of your life. Because she went through all these struggles as a kid, feeling powerless over all these large forces that controlled the shape of her life.
3: Absolutely. I do think psychologically it did even unconsciously have such an impact because we know, and we'll talk about this later, that the discovery she makes, she channels, practically speaking, practical, Mm -hmm. as her father would say was important, Mm -hmm. into applications that did have potential for curative or supposedly curative (laughs) effect, but certainly medical treatment. And that was clearly consciously or unconsciously important to her. So perhaps motivated by what happened with her mother and what happened with her sister. Her mother dies when Marie is only 10. So you could imagine that that loss would psychologically be very formative. But let's talk for a minute about the fact that she was already very bright, clearly very bright. It wasn't just that her father was feeding her this stuff or teaching her this stuff. At age four... She started reading. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Today we would be like, wow, what? Mm -hmm. But certainly with as little education as there was available until at least later than that, it's a real wow. She is known to have said, I didn't mean to do it. She did it in a setting that was potentially embarrassing to the family members that she was with who weren't reading. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she caught on to that and said, I didn't mean to do it, but it was so easy that I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. And her father saw that and he started giving her math problems. So at a very early age, she was already doing math of various sorts, which set her up for school to be really a very thriving student.
0: And it seems to be a theme in her life also that things just sort of came easily to her. You know, she took on difficult problems and solved them. And then later on in her scientific career, she made, you know, all sorts of discoveries. She won two Nobel Prizes. She's just like a woman of great intellectual heft. It's it's impressive. I would have loved to have talked to her.
3: You might have loved to have talked to her, but you would have had to probably only talk to her about science, (laughs) as we will see later, because that was her passion and that was her interest. And most other things didn't interest her as much. She did, of course, attend and graduate high school, but she graduated at the age of 15. Not surprising, just because she was really so bright and accelerated. And then her family, her father, sends her to live with the mother's family when she graduates, because frankly, there isn't much going on. They don't have the money to send her directly to university. So in this interim period, she goes to live with the mother's extended family to basically have fun, have a little bit of what life should be like for an adolescent woman at that time. And the mother's family is more well-off, so she gets to attend dances and have social interactions, and she goes fishing, and she actually experiences, interestingly, and it's notable. At this time, her first depression, Mm -hmm. because even though she gets pulled out of it by being in this happy environment, when she first moves away from her family or her father, I guess I should say, and the remaining siblings, she has her first experience of saying she feels incredibly down. She talks about her sadness and feeling that it's difficult to move or have energy and really describes the classic symptoms of a first major depression. That's important because teenage years are typically the first presentation of major depression in someone who's going to have recurrent major depression. And sadly, Marie does have recurrent major depression. But this seems to have been the first one.
0: And it makes some sense because she plows through school. She ends up with a gold medal. She probably is the kind of person who defined herself somewhat by her academic achievements, by what she's learned and the meaning of it all. And so then to have nowhere to go essentially afterwards because the opportunities don't exist there for women must have been frustrating. It's a friction against, you know, her identity.
3: Absolutely. And she makes a deal with her sister, Branya, who wants to go to medical school, that she will work and help her sister get through medical school in Paris, which, by the way, was the choice because it was one of the only places that would accept women. And that medical school didn't cost money. So Branya could do that. And for her living expenses, Marie helped her by taking a job essentially as a nanny for an intellectual aristocratic family, which was not an unusual thing to do, and sort of nanny, tutor. And she falls in love with the son of the family. This is her first love. The son also falls in love with her. And they go to the parents and say, We'd like to get married. And of course, the parents say, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. (laughs) You are not marrying a lower class woman with no money.
0: This whole part of her life to me feels like a Jane Austen novel. You know, this deal with her sister. First, you get an education and then I do. And she falls in love with the guy. But then the family say no. I mean, it's all there's so much rich drama there. It's amazing.
3: It is like a Jane Austen novel. Absolutely. A Polish-Russian Jane Austen novel. But <laughs> but it really is. And in that setting of the son saying, oh, you'll disinherit me if I marry her. OK, never mind. Then she experiences another depression. It's another loss. It's important to understand that when someone has had early life loss, like a mother dying at age ten and a sister dying shortly thereafter, future losses or abandonments, even if they're not a death, even if they're a breakup, can bring back the same kind of trauma or traumatic feelings and and cause one to experience a depression. So she really stopped functioning at that point, and it took her a while to recover. Of course, there was There were no medications at that time, no particular treatments for depression. But she did ultimately recover and it did resolve. And her sister made her way.
0: And her partner also, like Zorozky, the man she fell in love with, I think it was tragic as well for him. I read these stories that years later, he became a famous mathematician. Years later, he would sit in front of a statue of Marie Curie and sort of think about what life might have been like if they had been married.
3: So that's interesting. He became a professor himself?
0: Yeah, he was gifted in mathematics and he became a, you know, a very well-known professor sort of, you know, overshadowed, of course, by the giant that is Marie Curie. In any other sort of time period, he would have been very well known, but you know, it's hard to measure up to that standard.
3: Wow. So that's fascinating.
0: And I'm sure that contributes. You know, a person like Marie Curie is going to be attracted to somebody else who has sort of the same intellectual interests and intellectual passion and the desire to understand and take puzzles apart. So it, it makes perfect sense that the person she would fall in love with would also be somebody who wanted to unravel the secrets of the universe.
3: And she would go on to do that again. <laughs> Clearly, when she was feeling better and this had resolved and she would gotten over this. Around the age of 23, her sister finished medical school and tells Manya to come to Paris, that she needs to start her education and that Ranya will help her. This is her element now, right? She essentially is going on to graduate school or, you know, university and graduate work. Her father advises her, remember, I want you to do science that's practical. <laughs> I guess that's not what your father did, but that's what her father did. And so that was the mandate. Like, you, you go on and do this, but do something that's practical. So she studies at the Sorbonne in Paris. And she decides that after her previous experience with men, which took up her emotional time, energy, and caused her to feel depressed, that she would swear off men. So she was completely committed to the lab, to the study, And then she meets Pierre.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, there are men everywhere, right? Especially in science. A hundred years ago, it's dominated by men. And so it's difficult to do science, to be a serious academic without being, you know, the only woman or one of few women around. It's unfortunately something that hasn't changed enough. It is still a field dominated by male academics.
3: In fact, she was getting her master's in physics and math, and she was one of three women out of 2,000 students. So when you say male dominated, you're right on that it was highly unusual. And of course, when there are only three women around and 2,000 men, yes, you would get a fair amount of male attention.
0: And think about the fortitude it took to continue. You know, back then, it's not like there were only three women out of 2,000 because women weren't interested. You know, it was not something that was supported. Families were not encouraging it. The other students probably tried to push them out. It's difficult for women today to survive the academic climate because it is sort of biased towards men and populated mostly by men. But 100 years ago, it must have been so much more difficult. It must have taken like a real desire and passion to climb this mountain and make the achievements that she did in that climate 100 years ago.
3: Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety?
3: From the evidence we have, we don't see any writings that really indicate that she was pained by this, but rather that she was simply determined and that in a way she had emotional blinders on, that she she saw what she wanted to do yes. and she was really unconcerned about what other people in general thought of her, save for perhaps her father and her siblings. Her family did matter to her, but she was otherwise unconcerned and in that sense chose to live in a dank, cold, sounded almost like a cell (laughs) where she would have no other interests or comforts and purposely to do nothing but focus on the math and the physics, to not socialize, to not be concerned with having friends or concerned with certainly having a boyfriend. And interestingly, Pierre Curie, who was a colleague, let's say, was also fairly aesthetic. He was also a man consumed by his work, by the math and physics. In fact, he's known to have said that he essentially was uninterested in women and in getting involved with a woman because they could, quote, you know, suck the intellectual energy from you. And that was, you know, in the words, family and marriage was not what he was after He didn't want to be bogged down with emotional things. So he was also equally focused (laughs) on his work. And so it's quite amazing that the two of them should start to work together. And ultimately, it was really he that changed his mind. It was he that proposed that perhaps they could be emotionally involved, that perhaps they could get married. She says, in fact, she really did not fall in love with Pierre Curie until her honeymoon. She agreed to get married to him because he had really convinced her that they would make a great partnership.
0: Yeah, It was a scientific couple. They were thinking, think about the things we could discover together. Think about the mysteries we could unravel. And that's sort of romantic in a very unusual way. They're Supporting each other, encouraging each other, sort of resonating with each other, but not in the way that, you know, most couples do.
3: Absolutely. And of course, Pierre had, as a man, he did have access to certain things, the lab equipment, things that she wanted. And he did offer really to include her and to promote her work and let her partake of the advantages that he had as a man in the field. And that allowed her to do the work that she wanted to. That was very important. It was very important to her, but it it ended up being important to both of them. Can you describe a little bit the kind of work that they really embarked on together from a scientific point of view?
0: Yeah, and before he met Marie, he actually had an impressive track record of research on his own and with other collaborators, which he set aside almost entirely to focus on the questions that Marie wanted to ask. He's the person who discovered piezoelectronics, this property of crystals that if you put electricity over them, they squeeze, or if you squeeze a crystal, you can generate electricity. So he had discovered that years earlier and been doing research on magnetism and crystals. But Pierre and Marie were forming their scientific collaboration at a very exciting time in physics. Just a few years earlier, we had discovered the first particle, the electron, And all sorts of things were being discovered. X-rays had been discovered in 1895. And so there was an exciting moment. There was this feeling that like we were going to crack open the nature of matter and finally figure out what everything was made out of. And remember also at this time, people didn't know like what the atom was and what it was made out of and what was inside of it.
3: Pierre was kind of known for designing delicate equipment, right? Like the electrometer, this very precise or for the time, precise and delicate equipment. And he brought her in. She was commissioned to weigh metals, so to work with matter. And it was the joining of these two things. I mean, yes, I guess he had to diverge from exactly what he had been working on. But together, she continued to weigh metals, but it became more about the metals Right. And the properties of the metals that they ultimately began working on together.
0: That's right. And they use these very precise instruments that he developed, specifically the electrometer. Electrometer is something that measures how much electrical current can pass through something that essentially the potential across something. And they were using this essentially to explore radiation because this X-ray had been discovered recently. So people were aware of the idea that there might be like invisible particles shooting through space. But then a year later, Henri Becquerel discovered that uranium also gives out some kind of ray. So we discovered X-rays. Now we discovered these weird uranium rays. And the whole world was sort of ablaze with interest in X-rays. And not as nearly as many people were studying these uranium rays. So what Marie and Pierre did, which was interesting and fascinating, is that they measured the effect of these uranium rays on the air. They showed that these uranium rays, whatever this thing was that was coming out of uranium, was making the air so it could conduct electricity, just like a really small amount. And so that's why it was crucial that they use this device that Pierre invented, this electrometer. And so that was the first discovery that they made together.
3: So in a way, they really kind of invented what's called quartz technology, right? The quartz became like the big deal around that time. And wasn't that like used to power general things that we were interested in, like watches and other machinery. Essentially, that was important to use.
0: That's right. These piezo electrical crystals are very important even today. We use them in all sorts of devices. You know, every time you push a button on your barbecue, for example, that little clicker that lights the fire—that's piezo electronics. And so these things are everywhere. And they're used to do very precise location of very small devices and to generate electricity from motion. And so, yeah, they're they're certainly very important.
3: One thing that's really notable about Marie's work, even at this time, is that she would do an experiment over and over and over again. She was known to do the same experiment like 40 times. One might call that, as a mental health professional, (laughs) obsessive (laughs) on the plus side. Certainly, she was persistent, right? And it is important to repeat your data collection over and over again to make sure that it's accurate. But she was really obsessive about accuracy and repeating and repeating something that might drive another person kind of nuts, like, enough already. We did this however many. We've already done this 30 times. We don't need another 10 times. But she really continued. And that actually ended up being a very valuable trait in terms of doing the kind of science that they were doing together.
0: It certainly did. And later on in their life, they needed to purify these materials to get pure samples of the radioactive elements. And that took a lot of work. And she would just do it and do it and do it. She was something of a lab rat.
3: So there was this, I don't know what you call it, crystals or what is pitchblende exactly because she manually collected pitchblende for these experiments
0: Right pitchblende is a radioactive uranium rich mineral and ore and it has oxygen and uranium in it and it's something that was extracted during mining processes and she could get vast quantities of this stuff And she studied it and understood its radioactive processes, that it generated these currents in the air nearby. And it didn't seem to matter if it was in a solid form or a powder form, if it was wet or if it was dry. And this is what really gave her this insight that like, maybe it was something inside there, something inside these atoms that was happening. This is the beginning of the creation of this idea that atoms were not like indivisible little blocks that they were built out of smaller things so that they could you know therefore change they could like fall apart they could shoot out little pieces of themselves and so pitch blend has uranium in it and it decays radioactively and so it shoots out these little bits and has inside of it what we now know as radium
3: so this everybody got very excited about radium if you look back at advertisements even (laughs) for for all kinds of products There was sort of this, wow, radium, you know, almost advertising radium in weird non-sequiturs, but as part of something that you could somehow get or own or would make life better. Certainly, there was a lot of excitement about it. Clearly following, as you mentioned earlier, that Marie and Pierre and Henri Bacharel won the Nobel Prize. This Nobel Prize, I think it's really important. First of all, they didn't want to give the Nobel Prize to Marie. They really just wanted to give the Nobel Prize to Pierre and Henri Bacharel. And it was Pierre that said, I will not accept this prize unless my wife also gets this prize because she did the lion's share of the work. That's astonishing. Today, even, I would say that would be pretty astonishing. But just goes to show the old adage that it often is who you marry and how supportive they are of your career that is a big determinant of your successes. But in this case, he more than supported her. He pointed out, and it was true, that actually she, in some ways, did more of the work than he did and was more deserving of the prize. But at that time, it was unheard of for a woman to win. I mean, she was the first woman to win. As we'll explain later, she goes on to be not only the first woman to win Nobel Prize, but the first woman to win two Nobel Prizes. And the only person, male or female, to win two Nobel Prizes in two different science areas. So this first prize was in physics and she was able to go and was able to receive her prize, but had to sit in the front of the audience and not be on stage to receive her prize. Again, a lot of effort to push back and deny her the prize, but this ensured her a place really scientifically at least with her university and in her ability to continue on and do the work and that she did.
0: And there's something that's, that's happening already here, which I think is fascinating, is that both Pierre and Marie are having health issues. Like they're doing all this work in the lab, they're studying radiation, and they're so smart and they're so intelligent, but they're not making the connection between this radiation that they're working with and their own health. And when doing this research, Marie lost like 20 pounds while doing this research. And both of them had like permanent damage in their fingertips because they were touching radioactive substances. And throughout their whole lives, they never really made this connection.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I want to argue that at least consciously, they don't record making this connection. But I would tell you that perhaps unconsciously, given the fact that they did things like keep a little teeny bit of radium in a test tube. In their pocket next to their skin and see an open sore form, there was such hard evidence that it would be impossible to not register it on any level. And I would argue that it fits with her lifelong commitment to living in this totally abstemious way with no comforts of any sort. I guess I'm making the argument that in addition to having recurrent depression, Marie Curie was pretty masochistic. She was a masochistic woman. She really indulged in tremendous suffering. And of course, she felt that her suffering was for her work. And it was for her work. But it was acceptable to the point of one must wonder if she was not drawn to this type of behavior. And as you point out, importantly, not only did they suffer from these terrible effects of radium, but along the way, they had two daughters, Marie really did not love being a mother. She was really much more passionate about the science. She loved her daughters. She clearly loved her daughters, but she didn't love mothering. So she had this constant setup of not mothering or letting them do a lot of their own growing up and figuring it out and not being as present and feeling guilty about it. Constantly guilty and recording her guilt and that being a conflict for her.
0: But in that sense, also, she's a very modern woman, right? She had kids, yes, but then she went back to the lab. And that's what a lot of women scientists do these days. They have both. And so she's 60, 80, 100 years ahead of her time in the sense of thinking that she can have this role as a woman, being a mother, but also be a scientist, that she can do both things. It's really incredible. It
3: is extraordinary and highly unusual. Her oldest daughter, Irene, becomes a scientist as well, ultimately. And in fact, Irene often says that she was drawn to science because it was a way of bonding with her mother. In other words, her mother would be interested in her and talk to her about science. And that is the path she chose the younger daughter, L, ultimately became a journalist, was an incredible pianist, but had a harder time with the distance that she felt. Both girls report loving their mother and their mother loving them, but their mother was basically a workaholic, yeah. very, very dedicated to her science. So, yes, as you point out, they become sicker, they're cold, they're hungry, they're tired, sleep isn't important, <laughs> they don't take care of themselves, all in the name of science. And I also think in juxtaposition to her children, it's sort of interesting to think about her naming and discovery of radium and polonium, that she named polonium after Poland, Mm -hmm. her still, her nationalistic feelings about Poland, but like these became her children. Radium and polonium were her kids as opposed to her kids. That is the kind of dedication that she felt.
0: You think if you went over to dinner at Marie Curie's house, she would introduce you to her elements before she introduced you to her children? (laughs) I think that is
3: likely. And I think that if she happened to serve you up something that gave you radiation poisoning, you know, bummer. (laughs) But that was also a real possibility because as you pointed out consciously, she wasn't aware of that, but that was her pride and joy and the thing that she would want to show you. Sadly, Pierre is killed at the age of 49. While they are working, he is out walking, he falls, a wagon apparently rolls over him and crushes him. And this throws her into yet another terrible depression because by now she deeply loves Pierre and he is her partner in everything. And she cites, interestingly, that her work, in her opinion, is what pulls her out of depression this time, that she is so depressed, but by working she can slowly, bit by bit, find her way out of feeling so depressed. She's so depressed that she really doesn't care for the kids at all at this point. Pierre's father takes the children. He understands her, that she has to be working.
0: It's like work as therapy, right? If you've ever had a time in your life when you had a personal tragedy, sometimes just throwing yourself into a project or something totally different can help distract you from it and build up those mental rhythms and I've never had a tragedy, the skill that Marie Curie has suffered, but I certainly understand how that can be a salve in those difficult moments.
3: A salve, and for her, because it was such a passion, it probably even in terms of neurochemicals and the dopamine reward system in the brain when you're involved in something that you are excited about and passionate about would give you basically a boost in terms of your neurotransmitters. So it really biologically may have helped pull her out of the depression because at this point, she's really on to radium as a potential cure, having potential practical uses. And even though very upsetting things are happening along the way, like she's denied entry to the Academy of Sciences as a Nobel Prize winner (laughs) because she's a woman, basically. Einstein has, even though he had great respect for her work, called her Cold as a heron. <laughs> she's not exactly getting warm receptions from the scientific community, but what the pursuit of radium as a cure and the work around these substances really galvanizes her and she keeps moving forward.
0: And this again is fascinating because she's aware of radium's medical consequences. She creates these tubes of radium. She brings them to doctors. Doctors use them to destroy damaged tissue. But she must therefore be aware of the fact that radium could also be damaging her tissue. So I think it's fascinating because she must have had this cognitive dissonance in her mind. Clearly a woman of great intellect has all the pieces in place in her head. I think you're probably right. She doesn't want to see the consequences or she doesn't want to say to herself what it would mean because it would mean that she couldn't be doing this research anymore. It certainly was not safe and it definitely sped her death.
3: Absolutely. What about her second Nobel Prize? She wins it in chemistry. They awarded the prize. And then because at this point, it's been a while since Pierre's death, and she has taken up romantically with one of Pierre's students, Paul Langevin, also a researcher, also with that intellect that would draw her in. She has really what's described as kind of a fiery affair with him. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he's married. This is not of tremendous consequence to her. His marriage apparently is not a healthy marriage, according to him. But Of course, it's not he that is punished. It is always, in those days, the woman who is seen as the home wrecker. And so, when this comes out, because Paul Langevin's wife finds out and publicly announces what has happened in an effort to, in fact, destroy them both, the Nobel Committee, even though they've awarded her the medal, tries to say, Don't come. We don't want you to come and collect this. It looks bad for us.
0: This is so absurd. I mean, compare, for example, to Einstein, who's done so much worse. The mistakes he made in his personal life are just horrendous. But, you know, it's, it's hardly even known. So to even have this like, quote unquote, scandal attached to her name and her scientific legacy feels unfair.
3: Quite unfair. Absolutely. It's amazing to me that even with this recurrent attempt to deny her, she will not be stopped. This woman's resilience, her grit and determination is at least as admirable to me as her intellect, which is, you know, bar none. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment.
1: Prevent any disease. Snag
4: a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer.
2: your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.
3: Can you describe a little bit the second Nobel Prize, what it was essentially awarded for?
0: So the 1911 Nobel Prize that she wins in chemistry, she wins this for producing radium. And radium had lots of promising applications in medicine and in all sorts of stuff. And radium was really difficult to come by. I mean, she had this pitch blend and uranium in the pitch blend would radioactively decay to radium, but there were really tiny, tiny quantities and so assembling this stuff, proving that radium was its own thing and not just like some weird version of other things we already knew in a chemical combination, was really what she won the Nobel Prize for. And you have to remember back then people thought of elements as like each thing was its own. Gold was gold and lead was lead. And even though people had been trying for hundreds of years, you couldn't turn lead into gold. And so what radioactivity did was really break that. It showed that one thing really could turn into another it was the advent of honest modern day alchemy which is now like a real science we do this all the time in particle physics and so uranium would turn into radium or into thorium or into one of these other elements and so this was a big deal and this is back in the day when even just discovering a new element that was enough to cement your place in history because it was a new kind of thing that nobody had ever seen before And so that's what she won the 1911 prize in chemistry for, producing radium, which was chemically very difficult to extract from the pitch blend.
3: So and she also made the point at at that juncture that, hey, one's personal life should have nothing to do with one's work life and work recognition, something that actually wasn't a problem for men anyway, generally speaking, but obviously was a problem for women. A unique statement for that time, believe it or not. It was shortly after this time that the World War broke out, and she decides to use the radium, which she has now basically figured out how to create small stations to do Mm x-rays and to therefore be able to do x-rays in the field. This is actually a departure from the work that she had been doing, right? It's something different another creation another creative and practical use of science she designs these cards they're called petite curies at the end of the day but she takes her daughter who is also by now a very good student and very apt in her own way in terms of the sciences and together they literally go out into the field use these petite curies to x-ray in the field and change medical care because if you think about it right soldiers, they would look at your leg and they would say, that looks bad. We're going to take it off right here, right now. Now you could x-ray a leg and say it looks savable or it doesn't look savable and make a medically informed decision. This really changed triage care and wartime medical care in, in a very important way.
0: That's right. And this is really critical. And it shows how she's desperate to use scientific knowledge to improve people's lives. She wanted to help. She wanted to make this happen. And then again, she and her daughter, Irene, they were around all these x-rays all day long. And these were very powerful x-ray devices. And they radiated themselves over and over and over again. Back in the day, the first x-ray tubes that people used were much more powerful than anybody needed. These days, the x-rays we use when you go to the dentist are much, much weaker because we understand that it's radiation, that the more exposure leads to a higher rate of cancer. Back then, they would just blast people with huge amounts of x-rays. And Marie and Irene would get it all day long.
3: Right. They kept doing it over and over again for other people. Yeah. In a way, it's miraculous that frankly, they didn't Die earlier than they did.
0: I don't know how they survived that long. You know, without lead shielding and careful preventative care, it's incredible that they persisted for years and years doing this kind of research.
3: So, Marie, at this point, she's viewed as fairly heroic. It's understood that she is unusually successful. Other women, look to her. and In fact, women in the United States say, come here, we'll raise money for you. We'll support your work and we'll raise funds. So she does things even that she doesn't particularly like to do, (laughs) socialize with other people because she sees that in fact that they can help further the work. She is noted and a hero in her lifetime which is important mm-hmm. and is different mm-hmm. from i mean many people in the sciences it's not understood till after their death how important the work they did was we could be speaking actually of music or art but that she was really viewed as heroic in her lifetime thankfully for her she got to enjoy that appreciate that
0: well do you think she enjoyed that do you think that's something that mattered to her
3: that's a that's a very good point it seems from you know reading letters and so on, that she was hardly one to bask in it. Mm -hmm. She definitely was much more concerned with continuing the work than having the recognition. And the work was all. But the ability to do practical application and the recognition for her work did seem to matter to her. Probably having something to do with, you know, long ago, a father who said, I want you to do this. I want you to make it. I want you to practically apply it. I mean, being a success in that sense may have had some meaning to her. She certainly didn't say when the Nobel Prize committee said, Don't come or we don't want to give it to you. Oh, okay. You know, she wanted the recognition appropriately so. But you're right. It wasn't the biggest driver. It wasn't the most important thing. And I do think that this combination of tendency toward depression, which probably made her a very empathic person in terms of being able to read others and be attuned to and concerned with the suffering of others, for example, the suffering of soldiers on the field in wartime. And that combined with this obsessiveness, which It's important to know that when someone is very depressed, they tend to do something called rumination, which is really just obsessive thoughts that go round and round and round that are negative. They're negative Mm -hmm. thoughts. So instead of calling them just purely obsessive thoughts, we call them rumination. And her capacity to sit with the same thought and have it percolate in there and go around and around provided probably difficulty at difficult times, but furthered her work at non-difficult times, non-depressed times. And then this aspect of potentially masochism, which commonly runs in people who suffer with depression, right? What is depression? It is negative feeling about oneself turned inward, which is masochistic all by itself. And she took a lot of risks and was so denying of herself in so many ways that one would wonder about that being a prominent and important part of her character. She used these things nonetheless to problem solve, to solve problems. That was always at the top of the list for her. And that is, I think, what made her, or part of what made her so psychologically successful. And then she pulled her daughter in with her to do work. Can you tell us a little bit about what she did with her daughter? Because, of course, they go on to be the first mother-daughter and the only mother or daughter, Nobel Prize.
0: That's right. Well, she brought Irene in originally to help with these x-ray machines. And she and Irene went out and did that. And so, of course, Irene had to understand the physics of it and understand what radiation is. But Irene went off to have her own career uh, later on. And she won the Nobel Prize just after her mother died. But she won the Nobel Prize for essentially creating artificial radioactivity. Remember, Marie had spent a lot of her career filtering out radioactive elements from this pitch blend. But instead, Irene developed this way to create radioactive elements much more cheaply. She would take aluminum, she would bombard it with helium atoms, and that would create radioactive phosphorus. And so you didn't have to go dig this stuff out of the ground and painstakingly filter out a gram out of a ton of ore, you could make it much more cheaply in the laboratory. And also, it was just another example of this awesome power, right, that you could smash atoms together and create a new kind of atom. It's really pretty impressive. So
3: her mother, who labored and labored to basically come up with radiation or radioactive material, she did this artificially. This was a way of like an artificial radiation chain reaction that she created.
0: That's right. And interestingly, Irene missed out on a couple of other fascinating discoveries at the time. Like She was very close to discovering the neutron, this particle inside the atom, but was just barely beaten to it by Chadwick and others. She was looking for her place in history. And so it was this artificial radiation that cemented her place in the history of science.
3: And probably a big driver for her was her mother, because besides cementing a place in history, she probably cemented a certain relationship and a bond with her mother that could never be broken, that was really unique, and tied them together in science, which was just amazing.
0: Unfortunately, of course, Marie had died before Irene won her Nobel Prize. But I think for Irene, that must have meant a lot to her. To equal her mother, at least in achieving a Nobel Prize, even if not in achieving two. Who could ever live up to that standard?
3: Yes, sadly, Marie died in 1934 of basically aplastic anemia, which was likely a result of this lifelong exposure to radiation over and over again. Irene, too, sadly dies also of another blood disorder that is not exactly a plastic anemia, but also is probably a result of lifelong radiation exposure.
0: Yeah, it's sad that both of these ladies devoted themselves to science, gave us so much knowledge, gave us such a deep understanding of the way the atom works and radioactivity, but uh, sacrificed their health and their life for it.
3: She was later, actually, in the nineteen nineties, recognized again by so she she was she was Polish. She considers herself certainly a Polish national, but she spent most of her life in France and she was buried next to Pierre, but then placed in the Pantheon, a unique recognition by the French of her stature, even so many decades later. So it's really hard to think of a woman, let alone any person who really accomplished and was recognized for as much as Marie Curie ultimately was.
0: That's right. And when they moved her ashes in 1995, something like 60 years after she had died, they moved her ashes into the Pantheon. They were still radioactive.
3: I understand that her letters were not allowed to be viewed for such a long time, also because of the radioactivity. And that today, though, they have been made Available under very special and certain circumstances, you must wear gloves of a certain type, again, also because... There is still a tiny bit of radiation left.
0: That's right. And the lab where she did all of these experiments, normally such a place of historic value would be some place you'd like to visit. But nobody is allowed in there because it's still, decades later, way too radioactive to be safe, even for short visits. And, you know, she spent decades in there.
3: That's amazing. As a scientist, is there a thought of, you know, how long will it take before anybody could step in there or be exposed to any of that.
0: Oh, it'll be centuries. I mean, these things last a very, very long time. And, you know, it just tells you a little bit about the culture of safety. These days in science, we try to be very careful about not exposing our young researchers to things that could sterilize them or give them cancer, even if they want to be cowboys and charge ahead. There are just barriers in place. But back then, it was very much up to the individual you know, how much danger you wanted to balance with your ambition.
3: So one thing that's interesting, though, she clearly will remain a scientific marvel to all of us. I think she's also a psychological marvel because she really did have a lot to overcome, particularly as a woman scientist at that time. Her determination, even in the face of and maybe even partially because of the psychological issues that she struggled with. They became part and parcel of what drove her to repeat and repeat and be driven and ultimately succeed in the sciences in the way that she did. So she has that interesting package of both psychological struggle that also strengthened her Mm -hmm. and determination to continue on with the fine mind that she had.
0: And she also had this incredible sort of intellectual courage. I mean, to come up with the ideas that she invented, these things seem obvious to us now. You know, oh, the atom is made of smaller bits, which can fall apart and emit radiation. But they were scientifically shocking ideas at the time. They moved the firmament. They changed the way we saw the nature of reality itself. And uh, that takes real ambition to believe in yourself, to think, I can be the one to crack open this mystery and reveal something deep about the universe itself. It's, it's awesome.
3: That wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to my guest, Daniel Whiteson. If you want to know more information about science and Marie Curie, listen to his podcast, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe. And if you want to know more about the concepts in personology, you can check out my book, The Power of Difference, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. For psychological and mental health advice, you can listen to my new podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time.
2: Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Clang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti.
1: Don't delay. Transform your life with smart metabolic burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus? It's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living. your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack